The reading today is from Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 to 20. And you'll find that on pages 729 and 730 of your church Bibles. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idols with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of man, of man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cuts down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am, I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing, they understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so that they cannot see, and their minds closed so that they cannot understand. No one stops to think, no one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel, I even baked bread over its coals, I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? 2022, £39.4 billion was spent in the UK on advertising. Companies thought it worth spending £39.4 billion to convince you 
that you need their product, to make you tempted that their product is better than any other product you might be interested in. And I guess they spend that much because it works. They spend that much money because people are tempted and convinced in buying their product. And so money is spent in coming up with these famous advertising slogans so that we might remember them and we might be wanting to buy their product. So let's see if it's money well spent. Um, So when you hear every little helps, you think, Tesco. When you hear just do it, you think, Nike. Uh, When you hear because you're worth it, you think L'Oreal. When you hear there are some things money can't buy for everything else, there's MasterCard. See, good money well spent, obviously. Um, I'm loving it. Is McDonald's good? Um, Have a break. Have a Kit Kat. Uh, Once you pop, you just can't stop. Oh, there you go. £39.4 billion well spent on the people of Basingstoke, obviously. But they spend it to say that Our product is best, better than what you're using or what you need. The others aren't good enough. They just don't compare to our product. And I wonder if there's something similar that goes on in the Christian life. For Christians who look to live their lives following Jesus Christ, and as they do, the world shouts at them saying it's not worth it. What you're looking for, we can give you. It's better You think you can find in Christianity a kind of a happiness? No, we've got what you're looking for. You think in Christianity you can find a kind of security or safety? No, we've got what you're looking for. And so they say, the Christian God you follow, what he offers you, is just not worth it. Over the last few weeks, we've been in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And the people in Isaiah's day are in a similar situation. Isaiah, the people of God, are surrounded by the rising superpower of the day, Babylon. And it looks as if Isaiah's God is just not winning. He's just not worth it. Whilst as they look around their enemy's God, well, he's winning. And so the temptation is to stop following their own God and to go after the foreign gods. The Babylons are saying, your God? Really? Why would you go there when you can have our gods? Your your God's weak. Our God's powerful. You guys, you're failures. Us, we're winners. And so God, through Isaiah here in chapter 44, he wants to say to his people, no, stick with me because I'm worth it. He compares himself with all the other gods and say there is just no contest. I'm incomparable. And so as we work through this chapter, we'll see that. And first we see in verses 6 to 8, we see the greatness of God, the greatness of of God. Isaiah shows us, starts by showing us the greatness of God. Have a look at some of the ways that God is described in these verses. He's Israel's king, the king who reigns over them. He's Israel's redeemer. That is, he is the one who has brought his people back from slavery. He is the one who will be responsible for their salvation. He's the Lord Almighty. The Lord Almighty. 
He is God Almighty. The Lord is a, a picture of complete power. In fact, he is every single possible power. And so God says, look, because I am almighty, you can completely trust in me because, because there is no one or no thing more mightier than me. It's the picture Isaiah has been painting over the last few chapters, as we've seen over the last few weeks. God is almighty, as seen in creation, chapter 40. God is almighty, as seen in salvation, chapter 43. Isaiah goes on and says God is the first and the last. Here this description is is speaking about the very nature, the very being of God himself. He's the first. He is before anything and everything else. So often when we think about things, we, we cannot help but think about where they came from. So whether that's the natural world around us, where it came from, whether it's um, nations themselves, where they came from, whether that's people, where did you come from? Not with God. He, he is first. You can't go back in time to a time that was before God. And so if we were to travel back through history, as we look back through history, through every era and every period and every age that there were, through the the Stuarts and the Tudors, through the Middle Ages, through the Bronze Age, God was. And so when it comes to his very life, the, the very essence, the very being of God himself, he does not get his life from anything else. In complete contrast to the idols as we'll see in a few moments' time. God is self-existing. He doesn't rely on anything else. God is self-sufficient. He is the first, and then he is the last. And so when time goes on, and when we get to the end of time, and we get beyond everything, God is there. He remains at the end totally supreme, totally fulfilled. Isaiah goes on, verse 8, he is the rock, capital R. There is no other rock. This is a common description of, of the God of the Old Testament to say that our God is rock. He is a symbol of refuge. He is a symbol of total trustworthiness. He is a symbol of changelessness. Our God is rock. You can totally rely on him. He is totally secure to rest in. And so in a world that is ever-changing, unstable, there is one who will never change. There is a rock to which beaten, broken, battered, bruised people can rely on, whether that be the people of God in the Old Testament or whether that be you here this evening. As the old hymn says, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Here is the great God. The God that that wants his people to see and to realize that even in the midst of any kind of threat from any kind of surrounding enemy, he is great. He is king. He is redeemer. He is almighty. He is the first and the last. He is the rock. 
And look, maybe that's all you need to hear this evening. Maybe you find yourself almost crawling here, clinging onto your faith, and so come back and put your trust in this great God. And yet that's not all he gives us. As God shows us his greatness in chapter 44 at the beginning, he then goes on to contrast it with the idols of the surrounding nations. The idols that the Israelites, the people of God, might be tempted to go after. And so he says, as you compare me with these idols, well, it shows that idolatry is complete folly. It's complete foolishness. He shows the folly of idolatry, secondly verses 9 to 20. And it's a brilliant passage, isn't it? We're listening, as Katie read it out, the the description that Isaiah goes on as he shows the, the folly, the foolishness of these idols. And as he describes them, he, he brings out two big, uh, big flaws, if you like, in idols. First, he shows idols are, are just simply things made of human hands. Did you notice the emphasis that Isaiah gives on, on the human maker of these idols? Have a look down. He talks about the craftsmen, verse 11. Craftsmen that are nothing but men. He talks about the blacksmith, verse 12. He talks about the carpenter, verse 13. And Isaiah shows the, the, the detail and, and the care that goes into to shaping and, and forging and measuring and cutting all to highlight that these idols are just things formed by mere human hands. And yet, it's these idols created by humanity that then human beings look to for salvation. Do you see that in verse 17? He makes his God, his idol, he bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my God. Do you see the contrast to God that Isaiah is setting up when he talks about these idols? He says, God is creator, and God in his goodness creates you. And God is your creator. Well, he is to be worshipped. He creates us to worship him and find salvation in him. Yet, we as humans create idols. And even though we create idols we go and worship idols. Something that we create, we then go and worship. In fact, we go looking for our salvation from the idols themselves. Here is the folly of idolatry. Here's how one writer describes it. He says, the the very attraction of idolatry is at the same time its inherent destruction. We can make our gods. It's attractive, and yet destructive. Isaiah, he says, never allows us to forget that this is the nonsense which lies at the heart of idolatry. Idols made by mere human hands therefore cannot be bigger and greater than the one who made them, and yet the one who made them are just mere mortals. And yet Isaiah says it's not just because of who makes them that it's folly, But also let me show you what they're made of that makes it folly. Have a look at verse 14. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. 
It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me. You are my good God. You see, the same thing that man uses to to warm themselves, to cook their food, is meant to be the God that they look to to save them. And you see how the word is even described, verse 17? It's just the rest. It's it's not even the, the choice word, the best bit. In fact, it's not chosen at all. It's just whatever is left is made into this idol. And yet, in the last few verses, Isaiah finishes by not focusing so much on the idol, but the idolater. Not focusing on what is worshipped, but the worshipper. Have a look, verse 18. He says, they don't know, they don't understand the folly of their idolatry. Verse 19, in fact, they don't even think about it. It's the picture of of being so caught up in their idolatry, it's, it's almost become just second nature to them. And so, verse 20, sums up the state of them, a deluded heart. The idol has captured their heart's desires, and yet they're deluded. Isaiah shows us the folly of idolatry. But maybe more sad, Isaiah shows us the folly of the idolater. And yet in in 21st century Western world, if you like, we we read verses like this and go, well, that's all right. In the ancient world, that's that's nothing to what goes on on today. That's nothing to do with our world. And yet the Bible's clear, idolatry still happens. Isaiah speaks of idolatry as as taking a, a good thing a created thing, something that is used for good purposes like wood, for warmth and for cooking, and turning it into a God thing, an ultimate thing, something that we lean on, something that we trust in, something that we end up worshipping, something we look to to save us. As David Foster Wallace, who's an American author, not a Christian, said at a graduation ceremony, everyone worships something. And so the question is, what do you worship? And, and before we too quickly kind of look out the window and look at the world around us and judge them for what they worship, remember who Isaiah's writing to here. He's writing to the people of God. The warning from God is to his people to watch out for the dangers of idolatry. And so we need to look in the mirror before we look out the window. And so we need to look in the mirror as a church, not individually first, but as a church corporately. What might be the idols, the things that we focus too much on, the things that we elevate so high that we think that is our meaning, that shapes our everything? What might those things be as a church? Maybe it's numbers. 
Maybe we can kind of subconsciously think we're a good church because of how big or how big we are. Or we could be a great church if only we got to this number. Or maybe it's our activities, our programs, all the events that we put on. God, have you seen how much we do? Man, our church diary's busy. We're so active as a church. And can you see what can subtly but dangerously happen? We take things that are are good things, (laughs) putting on activities, having programs, wanting to grow as a church, and yet we take it and make it our everything. And so everything is shaped around it. Even in the last year, as I've been here and gone away to speak to other people who work for churches, one of the very first questions after they've asked where I am and where Basingstoke is, the next question so often is, and how big is your church? Because that's the most important thing. And what about individually? As we look in the mirror on our individual lives, what might be the idols, the good God-given gifts that we're given that we can elevate too high? A good diagnostic I can find for myself is how, how would I react if I lost this? Or um, alternatively, what would I give just to get my hands on this? It, maybe it's physical things for you, money, getting your hands on as much money as possible, which then in turn can bring physical things like getting hands on a house or, or the best car. Maybe it's the right job or the career or relationship, the perfect relationship, the perfect marriage, the 2.4 kids, the right education for them, or social media driving everything. Or maybe more often it can be the almost subtle, the underlying subconscious idols, the, the things that we hope that these physical things can deliver. A status, popularity with those around us. A, a security in life both now and for the future, a a safety, wanting to feel safe in whatever situation we find ourselves in, working hard to get get rid of that unsafe element, comfort in anything that we do, happiness. I just want to be happy, and so I'll go after whatever I think will make me happy. And yet the danger is that we can spend so much of our time and our effort and our money just trying to get hold of that thing. And sometimes they can prove to just be beyond our reach. We never quite get hold of it. Or maybe we do get hold of it. And yet when we do get hold of it, it just doesn't deliver. It's not quite all it's cracked up to be. And so we just go for a little bit more. Or maybe we do get hold of it. And you know what? We, when we get hold of it, it's great. We love it. And yet then we spend all our time and energy and money keeping hold of it. Because we cannot lose it, right? Listen to um, how David Foster Wallace puts it. He was speaking at a graduation ceremony for college students. Just finished their, uh, their education, their university degree, getting ready to set out on life on their career plan. And here's what he says. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. 
And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. And you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. It's pretty hard-hitting. Imagine if you were a student there, just graduated, hearing those words as you felt like you were setting off on your career plan. And so what do you worship? What is it that you are going after in life? Here is the contrast between God and the, and the folly of idolatry. Have a look back at verse 7. As God calls the idols to speak. He calls them to set out their defense. And yet they can't speak. They've got nothing to say. And so verse 8, God speaks. God proclaims. Is there any God besides me? It is only God who saves. Only God who delivers. All done and seen and through the person of Jesus Christ and what he achieves for us on the cross and resurrection. It is because of what Jesus has done that only God can provide a real security and safety. No matter what happens in life, to know that God will never let you go. You can never lose that hold. It's only God who provides a satisfaction, a happiness, a comfort. Laura found it. A contentment in the midst of circumstances. Only God who can provide something that can outlast all the challenges of this world and can last forever. So how are we to respond very briefly then as we finish? As we look at three verses, we didn't have them read to us, but very quickly help us think through how we can respond in verses 21 to 23. Firstly, remember... Remember, he says, I guess because we might forget. (laughs) We're prone to forget. The people of Israel, prone to forget all that God has done for them, us today. Eyes and ears bombarded with lies about God, attractive alternatives to him. And so Isaiah says, call to mind the truth. Remember the truth that God made you and he will not forget you. Remember and return to him. End of verse 22. Isaiah says, when you do slip up, when we fall to the temptation of an idol, and that might be you this evening, will we return to him? For he has redeemed us. The gospel is one of forgiveness. So come back to him. Ask him to help you. Rest in his loving arms. And finally, verse 23, sing for joy. Remind yourselves of these truths through 
bursting into song and shouting aloud. And we'll do that together in a few moments as we sing in response to all that God has done for us. But I wonder what it would look like for you. What would a life singing for joy, a life of praise to him be like? Song of choice in the Woodbridge house at the moment, remember I've got a two-year-old, goes like this. Ten, nine, eight. God is great. Seven, six, five. He's alive. Four, three, two, one. He's the king of everyone. He's the mighty, mighty Lord of all. It's great to see Lily shout it out and practice her counting down. I don't think that song was written off the back of Isaiah 44, but it reminds us of the truth that God is great. He is king, redeemer, the first and the last, almighty, our rock. And so compared to him, idols are nothing. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for the reminder of your greatness. Help us in the midst of our lives as we live amongst the world, as we're tempted by the idols around us. Help us to remember your greatness and therefore remember the folly of idolatry. And help us to return to you and to live lives of praise for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please do take a seat as we get Woody back up to um, think a bit more about that passage. Woody, thank you so much for taking us through it. And uh, we're going to focus a couple of questions here on idols. Um, I'm going to read this question first. Focusing on idols in the world today, uh, what would be classified as genuinely worshipping something? Since celebrities and media have such an impact in society, it's easy to get lost. Yeah, good, and a good question to ask. What is, at what point am I genuinely worshipping something in place of God versus enjoying the good thing? And I think that's the careful distinction we want to make, that there are good God-given gifts that we can enjoy. And so it's not as if to say, cut off anything else in your life, cut out anything else in your life but God. But will you, can we enjoy those things well and yet not worship them more than God? And, and so you, I think the challenge from God is going, let me be your everything, worship me, and yet enjoy these good things. And so then the diagnostic questions, I guess, of going, um, yeah, how would I feel if I lost this? What would I give to get hold of this? Um, but then I guess simple questions of, do I find myself thinking about this thing more than I do about God? Is my first thought in the morning this rather than wanting to learn more, please, and, and honor God today. Um, and, and even just, yeah, what, what do I find myself daydreaming about? Is it the kind of career that I want? And that might be a, just a bit of a kick up the backside for me of going, mm, maybe that's becoming my everything. And so I am ending up worshiping it rather than entrusting it to God and, and worshiping him. So I think there is that balancing act of going, we're not saying cut those things out of your life. You shouldn't be going near them. Enjoy the good gifts God gives them, gives us, but remember that he is the giver and therefore worship him as the giver of those gifts over and above those things. Thank you, really helpful. Um, I think on that topic, this next question might help us clarify. I'm pretty sure this is from a parent. Um, is the mobile phone today's most life-shaping idol? Uh, people turn to it for everything from first thing in the morning to last thing at night. How do we react if we lose it? 
Uh, yeah, good question. I don't know if I'm um, authoritative enough to say it's the most life-shaping idol. Um, but it's a big, it can be a big idol, right? And so a challenge can be, what's the, what's the first thing you turn to in the morning? Um, and if it is your phone, then what is on your phone that you turn to that shapes that? I was speaking to someone this week who, about this, and, and they were saying, I'm, I'm struck and challenged that so often the first thing in the morning is I want to grab my phone and check social media before I think about anything else, whether that be spending time with God or, or having breakfast. That, that's my first go-to. And, and I think that is a challenge. And Rose and I have challenged ourselves the last few years of not having our phones in our bedrooms overnight, which might be unthinkable for some people here. I mean, the alarm clocks do exist that you don't need a phone for. And, and it's just been really healthy to go, that's not going to be the last thing we look at at night. It's not going to be the first thing we see in the morning. And yet, caveat that with mobile phones, smartphones aren't bad in the sense of therefore we should not have them. It's really helpful to just carry around this and therefore not have to carry around all the things it has, a torch, a compass, a A to Z or whatever. It's helpful. Smartphones are really helpful. But when they become my everything, that I almost cannot be separated from it. I wonder if that's a good time to ask myself, is this becoming my everything that I cannot live without. And I think what you're describing there, Woody, is just this sense of actually living the Christian life is faith and repentance and just that sense of asking yourself, has this captured my heart in a way mm-hmm. that's unhelpful? What am I looking to hear rather than the Lord? It sounds like that's a kind of yeah. good thing to keep asking ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And there must be a reason, a good reason why, if you go back right to Exodus, the Ten Commandments, God first of all, says there'll be no other gods amongst me. You, you shall not make yourself an idol. And so God says, look, I'm, I'm your everything. I've given you life. I've given you every good gift. Worship me. And, and that is the best thing for you. So that's not just a kind of selfish God. That's saying, this is the best thing for you. And so that challenge of what is capturing your heart, let it be God and, and be aware of the things that could threaten that and to be yeah, Thank you. And our final 30 seconds, on, 30 seconds just on this. How can you help, uh, can you give any suggestions for helping us to remember, return and sing regularly? How can we help each other? I think that last one, how can we help each other is really key. Getting alongside other Christians, I look at close Christian friends that I've had for years who I will chat to regularly and, and ask them to remind me of the good news of the gospel. And so if I'm ever seeming like I'm going off track, for them to go, hey, hey Woody, remember Jesus died for you. Remember all that you have is a good gift from him. So, so having those friends alongside me to remind me of that is, is so vital. And, and then to return to him. I think um, we can live in a kind of guilt-shame world where we don't want to admit guilt and therefore we don't want to come back to him. And, and yet God opens his arms and goes, come back to me. I'm, I'm here. I want you and I want to forgive you. And so to every day, it's why we do it every Sunday in our service, to confess, repent and come back to him. And to have others remind me of that is vital in my life. Thank you.